Again, it's great to see all of you. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we are today. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and as you turn there, just a couple of things I want to say. First of all, I want to say hi to all of you in Orange. It is so good to be with you here again. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you. I know that you had nothing to do with it, but thank you for not walking out on me yet, okay? We'll see by the end of the message. So it's great to see you in Orange. Second thing I want to say uh, is an uh, announcement for everybody, both in Orange and your Belinda. Uh, give you an update on something that I shared a few weeks ago. So a couple weeks ago, I talked about how my wife and I got kind of an interesting piece of news, and that is we found out that we were, uh, a little bit unexpectedly, we found out we were pregnant, uh, that we were expecting our third child, but we also found out uh, the week prior to the, the weekend that I taught that we had a little bit of a troubling ultrasound. Uh, things just weren't quite looking right. Baby wasn't measuring. Maybe where he or she was supposed to. And so I shared in that message that we are going in that following week for a follow-up ultrasound. And then after I gave that message, I disappeared from the face of the earth. And I know that there's been a few of you who have wondered what the update was. And so I want to share that with you. We went in that following Tuesday. Uh, doctor uh, did an ultrasound on my wife, and he was unbelievably pleased with what he saw. In fact, uh, it looked as though, yeah... It looked as though the baby had grown actually two weeks within the course of one week, and so that was great news. God was just working a miracle, and so we are very pleased. So Lord willing, May, June of next year, we'll be welcoming our third, and again, I add our final child into the Ward family. I also want to let you know uh, that God answered a very personal prayer request of mine, and that the doctor confirmed that my wife is only carrying one baby and not two or three. And I think that is God's grace because he knew that I could not deal with, with twins or triplets or anything like that. So, uh, you know, God is always gracious. God is always faithful. This time he showed his graciousness and faithfulness in a way that was easy for us to understand. So I'd ask you, I thank you for your prayers, ask you to continue to pray for me and not just pray for me. Please pray for all the couples in this church that are pregnant, struggling to get pregnant because I know there's a lot of that uh, going around right now. So that's the update on that. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 here today, and uh, for those of us here in your Belinda, we are beginning a brand new sermon series called Satisfied, and Orange, you began it last week. And, and really, the, the whole reason for this series is it, it's actually kind of taken from a theme verse that we have for this series. This theme verse is found in one, Psalm 107 verse 9, we'll put it on the screen, and in Psalm 107 verse 9, it says the following, it says, for he, God, satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. God satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. And what I really very strongly believe here, men and women, is that our God wants us to be satisfied in this life. I believe our God wants us to be satisfied. He wants us to be fulfilled that every single day, in practically every single way, God wants us to be satisfied in this life. In fact, I, I love the imagery that's taken from that verse. That imagery, as you can tell, is, is actually an imagery of the dinner table, isn't it? And it reminds me of the holiday that we're going to be celebrating in a few weeks. And many of us at the end of this big meal, we're going to be sitting around the table. Our belts are going to be a little bit looser. We're going to have a dead, picked over turkey in front of us. And more than a few of us will probably, if we don't say this, we will think to ourselves, wow, that was really satisfying. I feel really satisfied. And I truly, very strongly believe that that is the feeling that God wants us to have as we go throughout this life. That we are satisfied. But as strongly as I feel that, I also feel very strongly that what God says is ultimately going to lead to satisfaction in this life and what the world out there tells us will lead to satisfaction are two very different things. But I don't think we Christians always realize that. 
I think sometimes we Christians are liable to get fooled from the messages we hear out there about what will satisfy us in this life. And so what we want to do in this series is we want to take a look at what the Bible says, at what God says, at what our Creator says, really truly satisfies us in life. And so we're going to get actually very practical over the next several weeks. Uh, We're going to talk about money here. We're going to talk about how we view our stuff. We're going to talk about how we use our time. We're going to talk even about our attitude. And all of these things are going to be in pursuit of understanding what is it that truly leads to satisfaction here in this earth. And in today's message, in addition to sort of kind of laying the foundation for what I want to talk about in the next couple of weeks, uh, what I also want to do in today's message is I actually have a very specific audience in mind for today's message. And that is those of you who are going through a circumstance in your life, a difficult circumstance, where you feel as though, you know, until and unless this circumstance is resolved, uh, I don't think there's any way that I can be satisfied. But what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about those of you who maybe you're struggling at work. You have a difficult coworker, you have an unreasonable boss, or maybe you just plain don't like what you do. And since work is such a large percentage of our life, that there are some of you who feel as though until this situation is resolved, I don't think there's any way I can really be satisfied, I can really be fulfilled in my life. I'm thinking today of those of you who are struggling maybe with another person. Maybe you're struggling with an ex-husband or an ex-wife or a spouse's ex-husband or a spouse's ex-wife. And as much as you are trying to maintain peace in that relationship, it feels as though the other person is trying to make things difficult. And maybe over the last several weeks or months or even years, you have felt as though as long as this person is in my life, I just don't see any way that, that I can have a satisfied sort of life. I'm thinking today of the person who's struggling with an illness or someone you love is struggling with an illness. Maybe you're taking care of ailing parents. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety or depression or something like that. And there is part of you that feels until this situation is resolved, until and unless you get the all clear from the doctor, there is no way that you can be satisfied. And what I want to say to all of you today is, first of all, this is going to be very difficult to hear and I recognize that. And it's going to be even more difficult, I think, to put into practice. But what I really believe that I want to share with you today is that not only do I believe that you can be satisfied in the midst of this particular situation, whatever it is you're going through, I actually believe that this situation may hold the key to your satisfaction. In fact, what I want to suggest to you today, and this is sort of the big idea of my message, what I want to suggest to you today is that the very thing that you think is keeping you from satisfaction in this life may actually be the very thing that helps you find satisfaction. The very circumstance, the very situation that you think is keeping you from fulfillment in this life may actually be the very thing that helps you find it. Now I know when I say that, I I, I can guess what some of you are thinking. And that is, Chris, there you go again. And, And you just don't get it, Chris. You know, you've talked a lot recently, especially about difficult circumstances and difficult situations, but with all due respect, Chris, you just don't get what I'm going through. I've heard you share some of the difficulties that you've been through in your life, Chris, and I have no doubt that they're difficult for you, but they pale in comparison to what I'm going through, and and, and there is no way, Chris, that I can be satisfied in the midst of what I'm going through, and there is definitely no way that what I'm going through can be the key to my satisfaction. You just don't get it. And you are right, I don't get it. And rather than try and prove to you today that I do, 
What I want to do today is I want to share with you the teachings and the lessons of someone who does. And that is the Apostle Paul. If you want to talk about someone who gets hard times, if you want to talk about someone who gets difficult circumstances, look no further than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in case you don't know, is one of the early followers of Jesus. He's really one of the leaders of the Christian faith. In fact, of the 66 books that we have in our Bible, 13 of them, nearly 20% of them, have been written by the Apostle Paul. And as you read through these books that we have in our Bible, written by the Apostle Paul, you get a picture of a man who is very well acquainted with difficult circumstances. In fact, we're in 2 Corinthians 12 today. If you were to just turn one chapter earlier in 2 Corinthians back to chapter 11, right at the end of the chapter, Paul gives us a list of some of the difficulties that he has been through. And that list is very impressive. He talks, for example, about how on five separate occasions he was beaten 39 times in a row with a whip. Think of that, five separate occasions. Paul was whipped across the back 39 times in a row. He talks about how on three separate occasions he was beaten with rods. He talks about how he was pelted with stones. He talks about how on three separate times he was on a ship and the ship wrecked. Never go on a cruise with the Apostle Paul. You're liable to end up in the bottom of the ocean. Three separate shipwrecks that he encountered. In addition to that, he talks about how every single time that he travels to a new city, he, he feels as though his life is in danger because there are people who want to kill him for the sake of preaching the message of Jesus Christ. Paul was a man who knew about difficult circumstances. But of all the passages that we have in our Bible where Paul talks about his tough times, there is none that stands out to me more than the ver first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 12 where we are today. And the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 12, they're very unique in our Bible. Because in just 10 verses, in just 12 sentences in my Bible, Paul gives us a picture of both the highest moment in his life, and he gives us a picture of the lowest moment in his life. He gives us a picture of both the most triumphant moment in his life, and he gives us a picture of the most difficult moment in his life. And through it all, Paul teaches us a lesson about satisfaction and contentment and fulfillment and where it is truly found in this life. The passage begins by Paul relating what is probably his most triumphant moment in his life. Starting in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says something to us that almost borders on unbelievable. He tells us that one day, 14 years before he wrote this letter of 2 Corinthians, that he actually got the opportunity to go to heaven. He actually got the opportunity to take a tour of where God himself lives. Pick it up in verse 2 of this passage and you'll see that. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So Paul here shares about this experience where 14 years ago, he says, I got the opportunity to go to heaven. Now, I know as we read this passage, there's probably a, a few different questions that come to our mind, two especially that stand out to me. The first one that some of you may be thinking is, Chris, you're saying right here that this is Paul's experience. But as you read through this passage, it doesn't look like Paul is talking about himself. And in verse 2, he says, I know a man in Christ. In verse 3, he says, and I know that this man, it looks like Paul is talking about someone else. Why do you say that this is Paul's experience? That's the first question. Second question, Paul, Chris, you said that Paul went to heaven, but in verse 2, Paul says that he went to the third heaven. 
So what exactly or where exactly is the third heaven? Well, these are two very important questions. And here's where I actually struggled quite a bit in this message. In sort of an earlier draft in this message, I was going to give a very long explanation for both of these. But I found out very quickly that I ran out of time if I did that. And so here's the decision that I made. Uh, Every week at this church, we prepare something that we call discovery questions for our messages here on the weekend. And discovery questions are written both for our small groups to go through, and they're also written if you want to do sort of an individual devotion. And they're based on the message, and they get you back in the the, the section of scripture that we're talking about. Well, if you go to friends.church slash discovery this week, you can download the discovery questions for this weekend. And what I've done in question number two in the leader's guide of the discovery questions for this weekend, I've answered these two questions in a little bit more detail than I'm going to give you right now. So if you want a little bit more information than what I'm going to give you right now, go online, download the discovery questions, and you can get that. For our purposes today, let me just sort of give you the cliff notes, okay, the sparks notes to these two questions. First one, it doesn't look like Paul is talking about himself. So why do you, and by the way, it's not just me, scholars all over the world believe that Paul is talking about himself, why do you insist that this is Paul's experience? Well, the reason why is because as you read on in this passage, especially when you get to verse 7, and we'll cover verse 7 in a minute, uh, it makes it very clear that this man that Paul is talking about is actually Paul himself. You see, in verse 7, Paul talks about something that happened to him as a result of this experience, and the only way to make sense of verse 7 is to say that who Paul is talking about in verses 2 through 4 is Paul himself. Okay, so this incident that Paul is talking about, it is an incident that happened to Paul. Now, I know that raises another question, and that is, why would Paul talk in the third person here? And for the answer to that, I'd refer you to the discovery questions, because there I answered that question. But make no mistake about it, this experience is Paul's experience. So that leads us then to the second question. Chris, you said uh, Paul went to heaven. Here Paul says that he went to the third heaven. So what exactly or where exactly is the third heaven? Some of you may know that the Mormon church actually teaches from this passage that there are different levels of heaven that you can go to when you die. The third heaven is the highest level, and what what level in heaven you end up in is dependent upon what kind of Mormon you were here on this earth. Is that what Paul is teaching here? Well, the answer to that question is absolutely not. And again, I go into more detail on this in the discovery questions, but what Paul is doing here is he's picking up on how Jewish people in the first century saw the world around them. You see, what we today call our sky or our atmosphere, I'm talking about where clouds are, I'm talking about where birds fly, Jewish people in the first century, they called that the first heaven. Why? Because it was the part of the heavens that is closest to us. So it's the first heaven. What we today call space or outer space, where the moon is, where the sun is, where planets are, uh, Jewish people in the first century, they called that the second heaven. They knew that the sun and planets and so on was in a different part of our universe than where birds fly, so that was the second heaven. So what's the third heaven? Well, Jewish people believe that God did live somewhere out there, but God didn't live in the sky, and God didn't live in space, and so they said that God lived in the third heaven. So when Paul talks about the third heaven, he's not talking about different levels of heaven that you can go to when you die. That's a complete misunderstanding of this verse. What Paul is talking about is he's talking about he went to what we today just call heaven. He went to where God lives. He went to where angels live. He went to where souls go when they die. And what is it that Paul saw when he got there? 
Well, this is where this passage is so frustrating to us. Because as much as we would love Paul to, to bring back this detailed description of what he saw when he got there, he doesn't. In fact, not only does Paul not tell us what he saw when he got there, Paul actually says at the end of verse 4 that he's not permitted to tell us. He says, I saw things which no one is permitted to speak about. In other words, either during this experience or maybe immediately after this experience, God said to Paul, Paul, you can't share about what you saw. I forbid you to tell other people what exactly you saw. Now, why would God forbid Paul to talk about his experience? Well, we can think of a number of different reasons, can't we? Maybe it's because if Paul tried to put in human words what he saw, it would completely pale in comparison, and so God didn't want that to happen. Maybe God wants to keep heaven a surprise for us, and so he doesn't want us to know. Or maybe God was afraid that if people knew how glorious heaven was, that some people would try and hasten their death to get there more quickly. We, we don't know the reason. But don't let the fact that Paul can't tell us what he saw, don't let that detract from this amazing experience that Paul had. One day, Paul got an experience that many of us would literally die for, right? He got the opportunity to, to go to where God lives. He got the opportunity to see heaven itself. I mean, I really do think that if Paul were able to talk about it, he would struggle to put it in human words. This was, no doubt, one of the most significant experiences of Paul's life. But it's this significant experience that directly led to one of the most difficult experiences of Paul's life. Because you can imagine what this sort of spiritual experience can do to someone. You know, some people have asked before, why doesn't God give more spiritual experiences like this? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if a number of us in this room got the opportunity to, to take a tour of heaven? Why doesn't God do that to more people? Well, the answer is simple. Because it can breed arrogance. It can breed pride. It can make those who have had that experience feel more special than those who have not had that experience. And you can imagine, whenever there's a disagreement in a church or whenever there's a disagreement in a family, someone could pull the, hey, I've been to heaven card, right? You need to listen to me because I'm the one who got to go to heaven. And God doesn't want that for his church. God doesn't want that for his servants. And God especially doesn't want that for the Apostle Paul. And so, as a result of this experience, to keep Paul from feeling as though he was special because he got it and other people didn't. God allowed Paul to suffer what was the most difficult experience in Paul's life, an experience that Paul refers to very famously as the thorn in his flesh. Pick it up in the middle of verse 7 of this passage. Paul says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, in order to keep me from becoming puffed up and feeling more special than you who haven't had this experience, I was given a thorn in my flesh. The Greek word translated thorn is the Greek word skolops, skolops. And skolops in the first century referred to any sharp, pointed object. And in fact, there is a very strong case to be made that when Paul refers to his skolops in the flesh, he's actually not talking about a thorn in the flesh, but the best way that that should be translated is he's actually talking about a stake in the flesh, like this garden stake that I have right here. That Paul is not talking about a tiny thorn that was in his flesh, he was talking about a giant stake that was in his flesh. Now obviously Paul is speaking metaphorically here. He's not saying literally he was walking around with a stake in his flesh. 
But what he's saying is he underwent a circumstance that was so difficult. Note the use of the word torment at the end of verse 7. He was undergoing a circumstance that was so difficult. It was like he was walking around with a stake driven into his abdomen, a stake driven into his stomach. That's how tough it was. Now, there has been a lot of speculation over the years as to what exactly Paul was referring to when he talked about his thorn in the flesh, his stake in the flesh. Most people think he was referring to a physical illness. We know, for example, that Paul suffered with really bad eyesight throughout his life. And so some people think that maybe Paul is referring to his bad eyesight. Other people think maybe he's referring to another person or a group of people. Maybe false teachers that seemed to plague Paul wherever he went and attacked his character. Still other people think that Paul is actually referring to a mental disorder. That maybe Paul suffered with anxiety or depression or panic attacks. I've even heard some people suggest that maybe Paul was bipolar. And that's what he was talking about. No matter what it is, we don't know for certain. And quite frankly, I like the idea that we don't know for certain. Because who knows? Maybe the the stake in Paul's flesh that he's talking about here today, maybe it's the same one that some of you bring into this place. Maybe his stake in the flesh was an illness, just like the illness you're going through. Maybe it was another person making his life difficult, just like the person in your life is making your life difficult. Maybe it was anxiety or depression or something like that. Whatever it was, when Paul first started experiencing it, I think he felt like many of us do. And that is that there is no way that he can be satisfied in his life as long as he's having to deal with it. And the reason I say that is because when you read on in this passage in verse 8, Paul tells us that the first thing that he did when he experienced this thorn in the flesh is is he asked God to remove it. He says, three times I pleaded with God to take it away from me. Three times I asked God to remove this circumstance, this situation from my life. Why did Paul stop at three? Well, because after the third time, Paul got his answer from God. And what was God's answer to Paul? It was no. Request denied. Paul, you are going to have to live with this circumstance for the rest of your life. And we're tempted to look at that, right? And we're tempted to say, well, Paul's life is doomed, isn't it? If this circumstance is as tough as Paul makes it out to be, then there is no way that Paul can ever experience satisfaction in his life again because this is going to be with him forever. I mean, imagine if you today got definitive word from God that whatever situation is making your life difficult, that it's never going to get better. It's never going to be removed. Can you imagine how hopeless you would feel? That's the answer that Paul got from God. And so we're tempted to think, well, Paul's going to be miserable for the rest of his life, right? Right? That's what we would think. Except for as you read on in this passage, you notice that something happened. There's an incredible shift in the tone in this passage. Paul's whole attitude towards the stake in the flesh changes tremendously. But before I get to that shift, I want to pause just for a second here. Because I want to illustrate the principle that I think underlies this particular shift. And in order to do that, I have a little bit of a demonstration that is set up here. I have on this table over here two mason jars. And they're rather large mason jars. That's because I ordered them online. And I didn't know that they were going to be this big when I got them. So, but it's good. You can see them a little bit better, right? So I have two mason jars. One mason jar, as you can see, is empty. The other one is filled with sand. And then I also here have this pitcher of water. Now, I have a question for all of you, okay? As you look at these two mason jars here, which one do you think can hold the most water? 
Which mason jar do you think can hold the most water? Let's do a little show of hands here, okay? How many of you think this mason jar filled with sand is able to hold the most water? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. Okay. Quite honestly, I don't know what you're thinking, but that's okay. That's okay. We'll move on. How about this empty one? How many of you think this mason jar right here? Okay, most of you. Now, if I've missed my guess, uh, there's a few of you who actually did not raise your hand. And that's probably because you're on to me. And you know that this is a little bit of a deceptive question. Because you see, at the end of the day, men and women, both of these mason jars can hold the same amount of water, right? They're both half-gallon mason jars. They can both hold the same amount of water. But in order for this one to hold the same amount of water as this one, what has to happen to this mason jar? The sand has to be taken out, right? Okay, so what does this have to do with anything? We're talking in this series on satisfaction. We're talking in this series on fulfillment. And I believe at the end of the day, the Bible's teaching on satisfaction is actually really simple. You want to be satisfied in this life? You want to be fulfilled in this life? It comes only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't believe there is any way to experience true fulfillment, true lasting satisfaction in this life without a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like what Augustine said 1,500 years ago when he said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Our hearts are restless until they find our rest in God. This is going to be probably the most important thing I ever say in this church. But brothers and sisters, we need Jesus. Okay, we need Jesus. We need Jesus in the same way someone who can't walk needs their, their, their uh, crutches. We need Jesus in the same way that someone who can't breathe needs their oxygen tank. We don't need just a, a little bit of Jesus. We need a lot of Jesus. And that's actually the relationship that Jesus wants us to have with him. Jesus doesn't want us to relate to him the way we relate to an uncle who lives out of state that we see every once every couple of years, okay? Jesus wants us to depend upon him every second of every day. Every day he wants us to be in this relationship where we're walking with him and we're talking with him and we're asking him for wisdom and we're asking him for guidance and we're relying upon him. And when we have that sort of relationship with Jesus, you know what happens? Just like this pitcher is filling up this jar with water. So Jesus fills us up. But Jesus doesn't fill us up with water. You know what Jesus fills us up with? He fills us up with himself. He fills us up with his Holy Spirit. This is the image that comes to my mind when I read a verse like Ephesians 3.19 where Paul prays that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of him. And when we are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, then we are satisfied. Then we are fulfilled in this life. In the front row, just so you know, you are in the splash zone, so you better watch out. This is what God wants from us. So here's my question. Why don't many of us feel this way all the time? Even us Christians, why don't we always feel satisfied? Why do we go through long stretches of our life feeling unsatisfied and feeling unfulfilled? You know the reason why? It's because we don't live our lives like this jar right here. We live our lives like this jar right here filled with sand. You know what the sand in this jar represents? It represents anything that gets in the way of us leaning on, depending upon Jesus. It represents our sin, yes, but it represents more than our sin. It represents our self-reliance. It represents any thought, any moment in this life where we don't think that we need Jesus to make it through. This grain of sand right here, for example, 
It represents that difficult moment in our marriage last week where we thought we could make it through it without asking for Jesus' help. This grain of sand right here, it represents that situation at work where you're trying to get through it without leaning on Jesus. This grain of sand right here represents that difficult moment you had with your child where you're trying to discipline them or you're trying to give them advice without first going to Jesus. Every grain of sand here represents a moment where we don't think we need Jesus. There is nothing, there is nothing that gets in the way of us and our relationship with God more than our self-reliance, than thinking we have this life figured out on our own. And the more thought and the more moments of self-reliance that we have, the less space that Jesus is able to fill. And the less space that Jesus is able to fill, the more unfulfilled, the more unsatisfied we are in this life. But as I said at the beginning of the message, that's not God's plan for us. God wants us to be fulfilled. God wants us to be satisfied. And so if God wants us to be fulfilled and satisfied, and that only comes through a relationship where Jesus is able to fill us completely, what does God have to do? He has to find a way to remove the sand, doesn't he? He has to find a way to cripple our self-reliance. As I said, after Paul hears this no from God, his entire perspective towards his scolops, his stake in the flesh changes. But don't take my word for it. See if you can pick, up, pick, it up, uh, pick it up on that as we read through. Pick it up in verse 8 of this passage. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you notice the shift? For me, it's verse 10 that stands out the most when Paul says, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships. What is Paul doing here? He's going from crying out against his thorn in verses 7 and 8 to actually saying, I now delight in the thorns in my life. I delight in the difficulties in my life. Why? Paul tells us. You see, this thorn, this scolops, had the effect of removing Paul of his self-reliance. He couldn't rely on himself anymore. The circumstance was too difficult. Paul, by his own admission, was too weak. And so since he couldn't rely on himself anymore, where else did he have to turn? But Jesus. Using the analogy of the jar, what this thorn did is it emptied the sand from Paul's life. And as the sand was emptied from Paul's life, that created space now for Jesus to be able to fill him up. And that's exactly what Paul says at the end of verse 9, when he says, the power of Christ now rests on me. And I'll tell you, rest is not the best translation of that word. That Greek word translated rest literally means lives in me, takes up residence in me. The power of Christ now dwells within me. You see, the very thing that Paul thought was going to keep him from being satisfied in this life is the very thing that led to it. Because the very thing that Paul thought was going to keep him from being satisfied in this life drove him to the only one that could truly satisfy. It drove him to Jesus. And what I want to suggest to you is that the same can be true in our situation. And the maybe the reason that God is continuing to allow this circumstance in your life is not to make you miserable, is not to keep you from satisfaction, but it's actually to help you find it. If it leads you to the only one that can truly satisfy. If it leads you to Jesus. 
There's a man in our church who has had to learn this over the past year. There's a man in our church by the name of Vic, and I got his permission to tell this story, but, but 2017 has been one of the hardest years ever for Vic. It started at the beginning of this year when he went in for an eye surgery. And rather than correct the problem that the surgery was intended to correct, it actually created a whole new problem. And for the first three or four months after this surgery, every single time Vic opened his eyes, the entire world was blurry. The entire world was out of focus. And no contact and no pair of glasses and no doctor was able to fix it. They said, you're just going to have to learn to live with it. So this created this feeling of helplessness within Vic. If you've ever been through an experience like that, you know how frustrating it is. So it created this sense of helplessness within Vic. And this sense of helplessness then led to this sort of debilitating anxiety. Where again, for three or four months, Vic had anxiety so bad, it made it hard to function at times. In fact, he was scheduled to go on an India missions trip this past summer with our church. Three days before the trip, he had to back out, leaving his wife to go by herself because he was just too anxious. And this was an entire paradigm shift for this man. Vic, by his own admission, has been a very self-reliant man. He's been very successful, made it high up in the companies he's worked for. He has, he has been taught at universities before, and now it's like the rug has been pulled out from underneath him. And it has been hard, and it has been tough. But you know what it's also done? It's drawn him closer to Jesus. And a few weeks ago, we were having breakfast at his house, and we were praying during this time of breakfast, and in the middle of the prayer time, Vic broke down crying. But he wasn't crying because he was so frustrated. He was crying because he was so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. You see, this, this thorn in Vic's life has had the effect of stripping Vic of his self-reliance, which has created more space now for Jesus to fill. Now, I go back to what I said at the beginning of this message. This is hard. This is hard to hear, and it's hard to live out. The idea that suffering can lead to satisfaction, I actually believe that is one of the hardest things to grab a hold of in the Christian life. But I also think it's one of the most revolutionary. Because it sets us apart from anybody else in the world. Everybody else in the world says your circumstances have to change in order to be satisfied. Other people will look at your circumstance and say, yes, you're right, there's no way you can be satisfied as long as that is going on in your life. And God says differently. He looks at your circumstance and he says, you know what? That actually may be the key to your fulfillment and satisfaction if it leads you closer to me. You want to be satisfied in this life? I can't think of a single person who would answer no to that question. You want to be satisfied in this life? There are two phrases you need to learn. My whole message can be distilled down to these two phrases. And they are, I can't, and I need you. I can't, and I need you. God, I can't do it. The situation at work is too tough. My coworkers are too mean. My boss is too unreasonable. God, I cannot do it, and I need you. God, I can't do it. This illness is too painful. The, the uncertainty surrounding it is too much for me to bear. God, I cannot go through another round of chemo, God. I can't do it, and I need you. God, I can't. The anxiety is too much. The depression is too much. God, I can't continue up to get up here and teach when one out of every four or five messages or so, I'm battling a panic attack, God. I can't do it, and so God, I need you. I need you. 
That is where God wants us to get every single second of every single day. And every time we pray that to God, you know what happens? Another grain of sand is removed from our life. And with another grain of sand removed from our life, that creates a new space that Jesus is able to fill. It's like that famous verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Is there anything more satisfying than a good rest? Is there anything more satisfying than a good night's sleep? Madison just started sleeping through the night, and it has been awesome. Just in time for another one to mess it up, right? I misspoke at the beginning of this message, men and women. I said that the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 12 give us the highest moment and the lowest moment in Paul's life, and that's incorrect. The first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 12 gives us two high moments in Paul's life. Both his incident in heaven and his thorn in the flesh were high moments. Why? Because in both experiences, Paul got to see Jesus. And my prayer for all of you is that God would use your experience to do the same, to show you Jesus. And as we close, that's exactly what we want to pray for. Would you do me a favor and bow your heads with me? Father God, as we come here right now, Lord, God, I want to, I want to follow the model that Paul set for us in this passage. The first thing that he did, God, is, is he asked for that circumstance to be removed from his life. And so, God, that's what we pray for. And in fact, to all of you right now, I, I would just encourage you, whatever it is that's going on in your life, right now to God, in, in, in your own words, would you just ask God to remove it? Would you ask God to take that situation out of your life? And I'll give you a moment to do that here. And so, God, we do ask that you would remove the stakes, the thorns that are in our lives. But, God, if you don't, I believe very strongly that is not what is keeping us from satisfaction, Lord. I think we ourselves are keeping us from satisfaction. God, and if we can learn through this situation to lean on you, to depend upon you, God, that even in the midst of whatever we're going through, Lord, that as Paul prays, we may experience that fulfillment because we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you. And so God, would you teach us in these times how to rely on your grace and how to rely on your power, Father, how to admit our weakness and our inability so that you can fill us up, so that you can make room within us to fill us up, Father. And would we be able to say, like the words of that famous hymn, that whatever our lot, Father, it is well with our soul, God because we know that you are there with us and you are, uh, you are guiding us and leading us every step of the way. And so, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. It's not easy, Father, but I believe that if we really believe it and embrace it, God, there's no telling, Father, not only what you can do in our lives, but what you can do through us as well and the ways that you can use us, Father, to advance and further your kingdom. 
So we thank you for this truth, Lord. We love you. We thank you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.